of marathon, but then you look, <laughs> you look at the next verse and you say, well, how can we skip that? It is, indeed. Well, let's um, turn together to Colossians chapter 2. And uh, this evening we're starting a new section of this wonderful letter. And uh, that section is found, of course, in Colossians chapter 2. And it is one in which the Apostle Paul addresses head-on the false teachings that the fear-mongers in Colossae were using, really, to beat men and women into submission, to drag them away from Christ and to themselves as disciples. Fear is um, arguably the most powerful weapon in a false teacher's arsenal. If you can convince someone um, to be scared of terrible curses or divine displeasure, you can get him to do whatever you want, at least at at an external level. And that is what the uh, false teachers in Colossae were doing. They were using things like obsolete commandments and fleshly superstitions and human traditions to frighten the disciples into joining their ranks, to lead people away from the Christian fellowship from the church and into their fold. So this is a section of the letter in which Paul, the apostle, is really yanking the teeth out of those evil strategies that these men were using. And he's doing this with the word of God. And the section I'm speaking of goes from verses 16 through 23, from verses 16 to the end of the chapter. Uh, Here, he is, as it were, inoculating believers against the scare tactics of fear mongers. He is addressing specifically the kinds of tactics that they might use. Again, obsolete commandments, fleshly superstitions, and human traditions. Those are the three kinds of methods uh, that uh, that they were using to ensure that people uh, followed them. And Paul is using the scripture there to arm believers against those methods. Now, uh, obviously, this evening we don't have time to cover all of them. Um, so what we'll do is the next three times that we meet, we're going to go through each one of those. And tonight we're going to limit ourselves to the topic of the Christian's freedom, the Christian's freedom from the Mosaic law. We're going to talk about those commandments in Holy Scripture that are here. You read them in the page. They are commandments from God, divine commandments. And yet they have become obsolete with the coming of Christ, which means that they cannot be used by a false teacher in this case to enslave you. So let's read verses 16 and 17. So verses 16 and 17 speaks to uh, obsolete Mosaic commandments that are in the scripture, but are have passed away or not necessary, necessary anymore. Then in the next few verses, uh, starting in verse 18, what you'll find is really an appeal to fleshly superstitions. And then Beginning in verse 20, you have a appeal to human traditions. Those, again, were the three different tactics. And we are going to tackle the first one, which is the obsolete commandments. So let's go ahead and read verses 16 and 17. The word of God says there, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let's pray together. 
Our great God, we pray for you to bless us with your word, the word of your power. We pray that you would encourage our hearts and that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, that you would raise our eyes to him in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, this passage, to be sure, uh, comes on the heels of a very important point that Paul has just raised. And that is the astounding salvation of God the Father, the salvation that he has procured for us. We went over that last time. We We noted that the Father has delivered us from death, from guilt, and from our enemies. Verse 13, for example, speaks of how the Father freed all who believe from death. It says in verse 13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Christ. This is where, this is what Paul, where he has been at in this letter. He is telling believers here that when the Father raised the Son, Jesus Christ, he provided in that resurrection a guarantee that we who believe would also come to life. He showed uh, an inescapable proof here that he had done away with the curse, death. Death is no longer an undefeated foe after thousands of years of history where uh, death was just taking people. And uh, no longer is death an undefeated foe. The Father triumphed over death by raising Jesus from the dead. And he promises eternal life to those who are in Jesus Christ and resurrection life in the same way. And that means that we are now free from death. But not only has the Father freed us from death, He has also freed us from guilt. Uh, The second uh, half of verse 13 and verse 14 speak to that. It says, Having forgiven us all all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, we said last time, that the certificate of debt that Paul's speaking of here is an IOU to the divine law. So a legal document, as it were, containing a list of all your sins deserving an eternity in hell. And the father took that list and he nailed it to a tree. He exacted vengeance on his own son. It was his will to crush his son so that he would not have to deal with you according to what was due you. And in that respect, he dealt with your guilt. So he delivered us from death. He delivered us from guilt. And also the father, we said last time, delivered us from our enemies. Verse 15 says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The one weapon that Satan has against man, as we mentioned last time, is the fear of death. Through the fear of death, his having no understanding of what lies on the other on the other side of the grave he's thinking that this world is all that there is satan gets man to do what he wants he keeps him in bondage but in securing our eternal destiny by raising his son and clearing our guilt the father effectively disarmed the devil and his demons he put them even to open shame we talked about that last time because of their vicious attempt to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ, they actually facilitated the atonement. They facilitated His sacrificial death for His people. They were the instruments that God used to nail His Son to a tree so that all of your sins could be paid for. 
So the Father, in the cross, humiliated the devil in the very worst way. And so we said this last time, the devil may be active today, but he is for sure finished. He's loud, but he is defeated. And so he suffered this devastating defeat. The Father delivered us, his children, from death, guilt, and our enemies. And those are the ideas that Paul is dealing with at this point. And they are the ideas that he is pointing to when he begins verse 16 by saying, therefore. Verse 16 again, therefore, because of all that has gone on, the amazing salvation that has gone on. He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, of course, we know what judging is. Uh, the uh, root verb or of the verb of the uh, the root idea or the root of the verb to judge means to separate to sort things out. So a judge is one who makes a decision to the effect that something is right, that would be a positive judgment, or that something is wrong, that would be a negative judgment, a condemnation. Now, obviously, the sense that Paul has in mind here is the negative sense. He's saying, do not let anyone condemn you. Don't let anyone charge you as a lawbreaker. And by the way, the, the verb to judge here in the Greek is a third-person imperative. It's a command issued to one person in the presence of somebody else. So it, calls, it cuts two ways. On the one hand, the Spirit is commanding you, the listener, don't let anybody judge you. And at the same time, the Spirit is commanding anyone around you, don't judge them. So it cuts two ways. Uh, obviously, this is a, an idea, though, when we speak of judging, don't judge. This is an idea that the wicked love to misconstrue. I mean, evil, evil people and even people in the church today like to say, well, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? I can't judge. You can't judge. Let's not judge each other. In fact, um, that kind of way of doing things goes back even to Genesis 19 verse 9. The Sodomites told Lot, this one came in as an alien and he's already acting like a judge. So sinners hate to have their sins classified as sins. They hate to be condemned, judged negatively. And yet, Christians are called to do that exactly. You tell a sinner, you have sinned. What you're doing is a sin. So that then I can show you there's one who saves from sin. So clearly, Christians are commanded to judge, to condemn sin. So Paul... It's not really talking about sin here. He is not speaking of sinful questions. He is talking about commandments that are obsolete. They do no longer apply. And what are those? He says, uh, uh, do not let anyone act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, notice there are two broad categories of biblical law here. Dietary laws on the one hand and the observance of days on the other. Food or drink referred to dietary laws, and the festival of new moons and Sabbaths referred to observance of days. Now again, both of these actually were Old Testament regulations that the people of God were called to hold. 
They are in the pages of sacred scripture. You can go to them. You can find them. They're, these are things that God had commanded his people, the Israelites, at one point through Moses to do. So for one, the Old Testament regulated what the Jews were to eat and drink. Let's uh, look at that briefly. If you turn back to Leviticus 11, this is the great chapter in Leviticus uh, when you can't sleep at night and you want to read about uh, the law for Old Testament Israelites. Leviticus 11 is the place to go to understand what were the things that they were allowed to eat or not to, to, to eat. Uh, and says there in verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth, whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. That is very important. To you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the, and the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, or is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Now in verse 9, he's going to move over to the water animals. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the river or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall detest their carcasses. Now, we could just go on and on and on. There are 50 verses here on food regulations. Moses telling the people of Israel what they could or could not eat. And he also at one point even touches on what they could not drink. Verse 34 says that if the corpse of an unclean animal touches any earthenware, any vessel, then anything that could be drunk from that vessel would be unclean. And of course, Genesis 9.4 and Leviticus uh, 7.26 prohibit the eating of anything with the blood. So... Uh, any kind of raw meat, and I suppose that you could qualify that as a drink. You can't have blood. So the Old Testament told the Israelites specifically what they could or could not eat or drink. But the reality is that these commandments have ended. They have ended. The Lord Jesus himself abolished those commandments. When he came, he made it clear that the age in which those food restrictions were part of the worship that is acceptable to God was coming to an end. Matthew 15, in Matthew 15, 11, he says, It is not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Notice, he was speaking at that point, uh, contrary to what the Israelites were accustomed to hearing. No, it, was, it, it is not what comes in, it is what goes out. He's introducing a new principle, that it's only what goes out that defiles you. And then... In chapter, in chapter 10 of the book of Acts, you might remember that story. God actually speaks to Peter in a vision and commands him to eat all sorts of animals that Leviticus 11 had said were unclean. And then in uh, 
verses 14 and 15. It says, Peter says to God, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. It sounds like a, a, a Ezekiel also, who has a similar experience. But then it says there in Acts, Again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And then in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul just simply says there, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God in prayer. So, whereas at a certain point, God was placing restrictions on His people as to what they could eat or drink, he eventually took down those restrictions. Why? Well, because the purpose for the restrictions themselves was accomplished. They were the intent of those laws were to put a yoke on their God's people, to make them feel the sting of having a lot of rules and regulations regarding every area of life, even down to what they could eat. And that was uh, to point them to the need of a Redeemer. One who could bring them liberty. Not only from burdens and commandments, but really the reality was that they needed a Redeemer to free them from sin. So when that Redeemer came, the Lord brings down those restrictions because they had accomplished their goal. They kept the people of God under a certain yoke that made them cry, made them long for the Messiah. And now the Messiah is here. They've been taught and now they are reaching full maturity. Now, the reality is that it is not as though God himself expected his people of the Jews to make the switch in a moment. It's not as though he expected Pentecost to come down and the day after Pentecost we have a barbecue party. No, remember, these were uh, men and women and children who had been taught their whole lives. It is evil, morally evil, for you to eat that pork. Evil. Don't do it. And so they have this in their conscience very deeply ingrained. They can't just make the switch. And God did not expect them to make the switch. So this is why he allows them it is okay if you continue to have those restrictions and he would he would even accept their worship that way he would have accepted them continue to have them if you if you're not there yet keep keep uh, doing what you're doing and that really uh, is found in Romans 14 uh, this is where where Paul addresses this in the church remember you have Jews and Gentiles there and again you have a section of Jews within the church who are saying, but this is wrong. I am used to hearing this and, and coming across this as something that is morally wrong. And uh, the other people in the church who were, were not like that, they were used to having their barbecue and they did not uh, see a problem with that. They were saying, no, but you have to have it, right? So Paul is, is striking a middle ground here. He's saying, you need to live together. He says in verse 1, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. There's the judgment part again. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats, eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has, has accepted him. 
Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. So the Jews were again. They were allowed to continue abstaining from certain foods. And others were not to judge them. And they were forbidden also from judging other people. But the fear mongers. The false teachers in Colossae. They were not abiding by this. No they were saying. They were coming to the people. The Christians. And pointing to passages like. Leviticus 11 and saying, sure, look at this. The Bible says you're disobeying. Very compelling, right? You're in sin. And your church also is in sin because your church allows you to do otherwise. So you need to leave that flock and you need to come over here and be my disciple. And I will keep you to those laws. I will help you obey that. It's a powerful way of leading people astray because it appeals to the very authority of the Word of God. Of course, in a wrong way. Uh, groups that do this, Seventh-day Seventh Adventists, they do this. They fall into this category. They prescribe these standards to people. Uh, even the Roman Catholic Church at certain points in their calendar have certain, has certain foods that you're not allowed to eat at, certain parts of the year. But Paul says, don't let anyone act as your judge as to what you are to eat or drink. Don't let anyone tell you uh, that having one food or another is a sin. Because it's not. God has declared all foods clean. The time when certain foods were not allowed, that has already passed. Now, the same is true about a second category here. And that is with respect to the observance of days. Again, Paul says in the text... Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, we have to look at each one of these. The word feast here or festival refers specifically to the three yearly festivals. Now, these would have been the national festivals that every Israelite male was required under Old Testament law to attend. Those would have been, according to Leviticus 23, Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, and Pentecost. If you were a Jew, a Jewish male, for the ladies this was optional, but if you were a Jewish man, you were required by law to be in Jerusalem for these feasts. Those were the national religious feasts that you had to observe. Now, when the Spirit comes down in Pentecost, and the New Testament church is born... There no longer is a requirement to keep these feasts. Certainly, the Gentiles were not required anymore, or they had never been required, to make any sort of pilgrimage to Jerusalem at Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles and Pentecost. And Paul is commanding them here, of course, don't let anyone make you now get into that of having to travel to Jerusalem as if God required you to do it. I'm sure it was okay for them to go. The point is, you don't get to allow anybody to tell you that God requires you to be there for this time of the year. Now, the Gentiles were, neither were the Gentiles commanded here to observe new moons. Uh, that was, the new moon was, as you can hear from the title itself, a monthly observance. Right And uh, uh, Numbers 28, 11 states what, what that's all about. I'll just read it to you. You can listen to it. Numbers 28, 11. Then at the beginning of each of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls and one ram, seven male lambs and one year old. And, uh, and, and 
seven male lambs, one year old without defect. And then even in Psalm uh, 81.3, there's a mention there. It says, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon of our feast day. So every month, you had every year, you had every month, another kind of uh, ritual that you had to fulfill. Every month, the Israelites were to hold a special assembly and welcome this new moon, full moon, and offer sacrifices. So they had yearly observances, they had monthly observances, and they also had weekly observances. It says again, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, don't miss the narrowing function here. Don't miss the pattern. He goes from yearly festivals to monthly festivals, which implies that the next one down is naturally a weekly observance. He mentions the Sabbath here, and that is no doubt referring to the Sabbath of the Lord or the weekly Sabbath. Now, I have to, to confess to you that this is a very uh, interesting topic for me, uh, because when I was growing up, maybe this happened to some of you, but when I was growing up, we only did three things on Sunday. We went to church, we ate, and we slept. And so in between services, we would actually sleep because, uh, you know, just all afternoon, just sleeping because we could not do anything else. Now, whether that was right or wrong, uh, it did raise my interest early on uh, in this subject of the Sabbath and whether Christians have their own weekly observance to, to keep on their own. Now, uh, I'll also say this. A lot of expositors, even many of the best ones, so good and faithful Christians, would say that this is an observance. This is something that you have to keep. They say that Sundays are the Christian Sabbath. They are, I guess you could call it Sabbatarians. And to argue the point, though, they have to deny that what Paul is referring to here is the weekly Sabbath in this verse. Uh, they say that it cannot be referring to the weekly Sabbath. It has to uh, 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 refer to another kind of Sabbath. There was a Jubilee Sabbath uh, that was once every 50 years. Uh, there was the Sabbath of the land every seven years. There were uh, assemblies on every, every year, Feast of Tabernacles and Pentecost. You had in between those assemblies, you had other assemblies that were called Sabbath days. So the argument for an expositor who would take that position would be, well, uh, Paul has to be referring here to one of those other Sabbaths and not to the weekly Sabbath. Why? Well, because Paul here is dealing with the ceremonial law of Moses. But the argument would be that the Sabbath was not instituted by Moses in the first place. It was instituted in creation week. It's a creation ordinance. And I think that that's a very important argument that you have to keep in mind when you address that and deal with it in your own, in your own mind. So let's go ahead and, and uh, read that. We'll go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1. It says there, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. 
Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So, no doubt, God sanctified the seventh day. He made it holy, he set it apart. Now, I think that the question that would naturally follow would be, did he set it apart for Adam? Did he set it apart for Adam? When he sanctified it, he sanctified it surely for himself, but did he at this point in creation sanctify it also for man? Was he requiring Adam to rest from his work on that first full day of his life? Remember, he had been made on day six. Was he requiring Adam at this point in his life to rest from his work and keep a holy Sabbath? I mean, at the very least, I personally believe that uh, he was not. First of all, because he, we don't read that he was. There's nothing explicit here, at the very least, in the text about Adam having to keep the Sabbath. In fact, you might say that Adam was in Eden, in perfect communion with God. Everything was worshipped. There was nothing to rest from, just like heaven itself, paradise. There will be nothing to rest from there. That will be called an internal Sabbath. So you would have to have another compelling reason to read in here that God instituted a Sabbath for Adam. But I, it doesn't seem to me that he did. I mean, even after the fall, you read, for example, of the kinds of uh, solemn worship that Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You read about the worship that they themselves offered to God. And there's nothing there about the, their keeping the Sabbath. Again, this is, these are arguments from silence, but they, all, they are on both sides. And you don't find the Sabbath and any kind of Sabbath keeping in the patriarchal era uh, in all of Genesis until you come finally to Exodus, until Moses enters into the scene. And we'll, we'll look at that. But before we do, I want to point you to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 10. This is a chapter on Israel, the relationship between Israel and the Sabbath. And it says here in Ezekiel 20 verse 10. So I took them from the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. Obviously, Moses is involved. This is the story of the Exodus. I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So... It's clear here that the Lord gave the Sabbath to Israel at Mount Sinai, and he did it as a sign. Just like the rainbow is a sign of the covenant with Noah, and circumcision is a sign of the covenant with Abraham, so is the Sabbath the sign of the covenant with Israel. And that is why I believe you don't read of any instances in which the Lord condemns Gentiles for breaking Sabbath law. It was not for them. Even when you read reasons why God ex was expelling the Canaanites out of the promised land in Leviticus, 
There is no mention of Sabbath breaking. All kinds of sins are mentioned. No mention of Sabbath breaking. They were being condemned for all kinds of sins and impurities. And many of them are listed there. But there's nothing there on the Sabbath. And in contrast, when you read in Ezekiel 20 of all places, why Israel is being expelled from the land, the foremost violation, you broke my Sabbath. That's why they were losing their place in the land. Other sins, sure, there's also a big deal here made of the breaking of the Sabbath. So, the Sabbath was specifically for the Jews. It was their covenant sign. It was not for Gentiles. And in fact, when you read in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, the best pastor in the world, he's always threatening to use force on people. And... Uh, <laughs> He threatens force against the traitors at the end of the book because they were selling in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And he doesn't threaten them for breaking the Sabbath. He threatens them for making other people, Israelites, Jews, break the Sabbath. You say, okay, but isn't the Sabbath one of the Ten Commandments? It's the Fourth Commandment. And aren't the Ten Commandments moral law? A law that is unchanging, as unchanging as God himself is, and that applies to every person at all times and everywhere. Now to that, I would say that as much as the Ten Commandments are a representation of God's moral law, for sure, the Fourth Commandment has to be both moral and ceremonial. It has to be both moral and ceremonial. It has to have elements that pass away and elements that stay otherwise you and I would be worshiping on a Saturday. Exodus 20.10. The seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. In other words, the fourth commandment has to have aspects that ended. And uh, also, as I said, aspects in it that remain forever. Ceremonial aspects and Moral aspects. The specific day, Saturday, a specific day in which you worship, that had to have been ceremonial because it was brought down. Otherwise, again, we'd be worshiping on Saturdays and not on Sundays. You ask then, okay, so what is moral about this commandment? If I am looking at the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, and I am looking for the moral kernel in it, the Part of it that is reflective of God's own heart and God's perfect law, his moral law. What is that? What is it about the Sabbath that applies to all people at all times and in every place? What are the underlying principles that the Lord of the Sabbath, you might remember that Jesus himself called himself the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning I do with the Sabbath what I want. What is it about the Sabbath there that Jesus kept in place even while bringing down the entire institution itself. In other words, how does the fourth commandment apply to you? And I'm not going to go over all of this. We might say they, you ought to treat employees well. Remember, it talks about giving your, uh, your servants a, a day of rest, so forth and so on. But the most important, the most important moral principle that underlies the Sabbath law 
is that there are set times for worship that you have to abide by. There are times instituted for the people of God to gather and to worship and you should be there for them. Of course, we call that the main one, the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. That is Sunday. And we call it the Lord's Day because of Revelation 1.10 where it says, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And you might remember that at that point, Jesus is coming from being among the churches. The churches were meeting on a Sunday and Jesus has visited them and now He is appearing to John. And it's the Lord's Day. By the way, it is a day. So... Uh, we would get together, ideally, in the morning and in the evening. And Lord willing, we will one day. Uh, so you do give the Lord a full day of hearing His Word and fellowship with other believers. But here is the practical difference. Here is the great distinction between the Jewish Sabbath and the Christian Lord Day. We're not going to give you a list of do's or we're not going to give you a list of don'ts. We're not going to give you a, a list of things that you cannot do. We're not going to tell you that you sinned because you stopped at the store on the way home. Or that you cooked a meal. Or, or because you answered a work email. Or because you went outside to play catch. No, instead we're going to say in positive terms, Sunday is the day that the Lord has made. It is the day of Christ's resurrection and enthronement. Sunday is the day of which God spoke long ago when He said to His very own son, today I have begotten you. It was on a Sunday that Christ resurrected. It's a day to be enjoyed. It is a day to be celebrated. It is the perfect day to spend time as much as you can with the people of God and rejoicing in the word of God and in the works of God. In other words, it's not so much about what you don't do. It's a matter of what you do. Everything else, the strictness, the don'ts, the Old Testament prohibitions, for example, against gathering sticks of, or lighting fires and carrying burdens, even on penalty of capital punishment. All of those things had sprung out of the ceremonial law and they have passed away. Now we have the Lord's Day, a beautiful day of celebration, of being together, a day honored by God. So Paul is saying, you don't let... Anyone stand over you as your judge in these matters. Now, what you have there was uh, judging, but to an extreme situation, right? Because these were false teachers saying you need to worship on Saturday. I mean, we have we have those um, today, the Seventh Day Adventists again. But he's saying either way, you don't let anyone try to control your conscience through that. And he brings up that issue also in. Uh, Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. This is, again, this is another place where fine expositors would say, he is not speaking of Sunday here. But uh, verse 5 says, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who does not eat for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For, no, for not one of us lives for himself, 
And not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Amen. In other words, if somebody wants to withhold from certain things. Again, this is the principle we went over with respect to the foods. If, every, if somebody wants to withhold from certain things on certain days, Paul is saying, let them. Let them. Respect them. They are doing that for Christ. But if you, um, in, in, in your conscience, are convinced that every day is the same, in the sense that you don't ascribe a special holy character to a specific day of the week, then that is permissible as well. And the Colossians, again, they needed to know that because there were fear mongers that were using strict regulations given to Israel specifically to bring them as Gentiles under a yoke that Israel itself had never been able to live under. They themselves, for example, could not keep the Sabbath law and were expelled from the law or from the land. But Paul notes here that the purpose of those ceremonies were actually to point to Jesus Christ. Notice uh, verse 17, he says, Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The things that, that Paul is referring to again here are the foot loss, the dietary restriction, the restrictions and the observance of holy days. So the ceremonial law in general. He's saying all of the ceremonial law of Moses, all of those things were a shadow. And a shadow, of course, is a shadow of, of a body. The, the word that is translated as substance here literally is the word body. So Paul is saying, look, the body is Jesus Christ, his person and his work. So the ceremonies of the Old Testament, including also the sacrifices, they had a certain effect. They showed what the shape of Christ would be. They outlined his form. They showed that he was coming and they showed that he would be a redeemer from a heavy yoke. They showed Jesus Christ. I, I love my dear wife. And if I was ever sitting down and I would see a shadow of her coming, I would not try to go hug the shadow and try to take the shadow home with me. I would see, here's my wife. And Paul is saying here, those were shadows. The substance, the body is Jesus Christ. They were a black shadow. The shadow itself was, was limited in what it could communicate. And it was passing away when the light shone. No shadow was left over. And so he's speaking of these commandments. This part of the Old Testament regulations. As obsolete. Yeah, they're there in your Bible. And you read them and they edify you. But not in the way that they would have edified an Old Testament Israelite who had to live by them. Now they help you to understand what Jesus did for you. The law that He perfectly kept. The law that He delivered you from. So as long as you know and understand this. As long as you understand the ceremonial character. The passing away character of the Mosaic Law, at least that portion of it, the fear mongers would have, uh, the fear mongers, the kinds of false teachers that Paul is speaking of, they will have nothing in you. They will not be able to snare you and to drag your conscience away. 
Now, next time, uh, we have two other tactics that they used. Again, we said at the beginning that they used uh, obsolete divine commandments, but they also had other tools in their belt. They wanted to draw disciples after Jesus, after, after, of Jesus Christ after themselves. And so they, they used not just those laws, those laws that are obsolete, but they also used superstitions of the flesh. And they used also human traditions. They scared people through those. And those are the, in the rest of the second chapter of Colossians. Those are the ones that we are going to continue seeing next time.